Good evening, everyone. Let me welcome you to another episode of MK Speaks. I'm happy to be your host tonight. I am Marianne Kyle. Tonight's episode is really, I think, meaningful and powerful because it deals with mental health issues with our creative partners and our creative colleagues. And so we're very honored to have with us Philip Searcy tonight. I'm going to actually let my guests introduce themselves. So Philip, please take a moment to let our listeners and our viewers know who you are. Thank you. Um, again, yeah, my name is Philip Searcy. I am a licensed clinical social worker uh, practicing in South Carolina, and I am co-owner of a um, outpatient mental health practice. It's a group practice called Therapy Group that uh, opened in 2019. Perfect. Yeah, my name is Joe Hernandez. I'm glad to be back on again for with MK Speaks. Um, I'm the owner of uh, JMH Media as well as a marketing professional in the corporate world uh, with experience um, in theater um, uh, for the last 20 years or so. And we've been talking a little bit uh, prior to this recording about sort of the state of the affairs with the creative economy, particularly with mental health and how we're dealing with changes post COVID, how many of our teachers and colleagues are dealing with burnout uh, related to the changing economy and related to a lot of the issues that we face in the, uh, in the world. So, Philip, would you tell us a little bit, I know you're an actor uh, and you're a mental health professional, but can you tell us a little bit about your journey as an actor and as a mental health professional? Yeah, it, it, it seems always interesting how people respond when I told them that my uh, undergraduate degree was a uh, double major in theater and psychology and it's uh there's a lot of drama in theater and so it uh really kind of lend itself to to seeing a lot of different personality types i'll tell you that uh but you know jokingly i not jokingly really i really initially thought that i would be interested in getting into the arts and acting and then becoming a therapist and then becoming a therapist for actors that was kind of my og plan back in the day um but i i I've always known, honestly, since really from high school, uh, I started to realize that a lot of my friends would come to me and talk to me about their issues and what was going on. And I just seemed to be that person that people confided in. And I, I, I really enjoyed it. I liked being able to help people. And so I remember senior year in high school, I, I, in my, in my mind, mentally, I said, I was one day you want to become a therapist. I had no idea what all that would entail, uh, but it was a, uh, you know, a vision from, you know, a teenage brain, but uh, I was drawn into, into the arts. I just always really uh, loved theater in particular, and so once I got into undergrad, because I, outside of church stuff, I'd really not done much um, performance stuff on stage. So I tried out acting in undergrad and fell in love. Uh, my first show was Annie um, and I was Mr. Bundles. And so it was a, uh, a fun, fun role and then being able to be in the chorus and I just fell in love with it and felt uh, that was my tribe. That was like who I, who I needed to be around because honestly, I almost considered changing schools before I took that first acting class. But uh, yeah, it was a, uh, just infiltrated into the arts and I did that throughout undergrad and then I worked in film and television post-grad you know graduate uh, I mean post um, 
graduation from undergrad and uh, loved it, but it got to a spot where my, my heart was pulling me back into the mental health world and helping people in a, in a different capacity. And so I uh, went back to grad school and then so on and so on through the path to become a, where I am today. I always joke with teachers, we talk about the fact that we're voice teachers and acting teachers, but we're also half-time mental health professionals. And that's yeah. being empathetic as an actor and a performer and being a teacher and that therapist, that where that empathy comes into play. And I'm like, ooh, okay. You see where these two worlds meet. So Absolutely. for me, I can understand how that was not such a big jump for you to do that. No, so, really wasn't. No. Yeah. So, so I, we are talking about performers that are in the midst of their degree or in the midst of their career field. And um, we know, of course, the landscape has changed over time. And so when you're working with creatives, particularly in the therapeutic environment, how do you talk with them about some of the harsh realities that they're facing in this world in terms of making a living, pursuing a career in this? Um, I mean, the harsh realities, I, you know, that I like that, that phrasing, um, I think it's very, very real, very raw, you know, it is, it is harsh. It, it's, it's a, it's a tough time. Um, and at the same time, not, but, and that's the way I always talk to people is like, uh, but is the most invalidating word we can use. And, and is the most validating, right? Um, you know, if I went to my wife and said, you suck at cooking, but I love you, right? Or I love you, but you suck at cooking, right? It takes it away. And so saying, I love you and you suck at cooking, right? That holds more weight, even though I would never say that to her. So uh, I, I would say it is a harsh reality and we, we can persevere, right? We can push through. Uh, it's going to be very uncomfortable, but it, and it's realizing that we are strong enough to, to overcome. Sometimes we, we allow that weight of the reality, the, how harsh it is and what's going on to, to hold us down. And I think we, we don't hold enough weight into our, how much we have already overcome and how much that really does hold weight. You know, we, I think because things don't always hold weight in our head, it's so easy to minimize and it's so easy to, to look down on, oh, well, that wasn't that hard. So it didn't hold that much weight. Right. And I was guilty of it too. I mean, even going through grad school, I was, you know, almost a 4.0 GPA, but I didn't think I was good enough because I knew I didn't read every textbook. I didn't, you know, in dive deep into every journal article, scholarly article that I was supposed to read. And so I would hold myself to this um, high standard. And so it was allowing myself to not look at, okay, these were all of the other things that I overcame. And so it's so important for us to really take a step back and say, yes, this is hard and we've already come overcome this much. That is okay. We can keep doing it. Yeah. That's interesting. That kind of brings up, I know we uh, we talk a lot about having imposter syndrome. And a lot of my uh, teachers that I work with and mentor talk about as full-blown professionals having imposter syndrome. And so here they are, they've been in the field for 20 years, 
and they they say, well, I didn't do enough. I didn't sing enough. I feel this way about my voice or I feel this way about my acting abilities. Therefore, I really can't be an authority with my students, yet they have to be an authority. And so what happens is they don't speak out that they have imposter syndrome. But of course, it emerges, you know, sort of unsaid in their teaching and in their, in their practice. I always tell them that it leaks out sideways. Right. Um, and they really battle this and they, they forget, I think, in my opinion, I don't know how you feel about this, that, they, that their experience they move along through life they're picking up the experiences to be an authority. I think they sort of discount that in the long run. Yes, yes. Uh, I have, um, you know, I, I, my instant thought is what Brene Brown, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Brene Brown, right? <laughs> Good. She's incredible. And, you know, what she always says is that at the core, everyone is fear and shame. And a majority of the time, it's fear, and it's fear of having more evidence to shame ourselves. Right? Fear of having more evidence to shame ourselves, that we know every single thing in our head that nobody else knows. All the people that we've hurt, all the mean things we've said or mean things people have said to us, every mistake we've ever made, we have to live with that. And that feeds and fuels that imposter syndrome. And until we actually speak it and feel it, we cannot release it. Mm. I like that. Have you ever dealt with in your practice professionals that really suffer from imposter syndrome? How do you help them through that <laughs> process? <laughs> oh man, you know it's tough because you know I'm I'm human myself. I'm I'm a therapist. I've studied this. I I work with people every day, and I have to practice what I preach. You know, I, I feel like I struggle with it myself, and I'm not scared to say it because it's such a real thing. And I think that's where our society really lacks is in the vulnerability and allowing ourselves to truly show who we are and not just wear the mask of what we want other people to see us as because we think we know what they want. And, you know, it's, it's such a difficult dynamic because until we've truly been authentic with someone, we don't really know that they really accept us, right? Because we know, like, I haven't, I haven't told them everything. So if that, you know, I have people in my office all the time. If, if somebody knew this about me, they wouldn't still like me, right? They wouldn't still look at me the same. They wouldn't still respect me. And so we've got to remember all of that evidence that's in our head, it's the voice through which we talk to ourselves, And it's what we call in the therapeutic world, automatic intrusive thoughts. They're automatic, they're intrusive, we don't want them there and they're there. And if we don't become intentional at challenging them, not stopping them, there's the bad misconception that people feel that they have to thought stop. They have to prevent themselves from thinking something, but it's like the old thought of, you know, don't think about a pur purple elephant. <laughs> the purple elephant's there. <laughs> exactly. So anything that we tell ourselves not to think about, we think about more. And that's why some people struggle with sleep at night. They're like, don't think, don't think. And they just keep thinking. And so it's, it's more leaning into that and it's saying, you know, what is this thought? And 
what is the opposite, right? It's saying, okay, uh, yeah, I think these people are worried or, or, you know, dislike me. What evidence do I have? Now, what it's just as possible that they're not thinking about me at all, right? And so it's, it's getting into that, that habit of recognizing the thought, challenging it, and, and then we can actually feel more in control. And that's what the therapeutic process is. It's not trying to change someone. It's trying to say, all right, how can we fine tune, right? I always give the example of the old school radio right? You know, where you actually had to turn the knob to get there. You could get close enough where you could tell what song was playing. It's just not enjoyable, Mm -hmm. right? But once you fine tune and you hit the sweet spot, now the music is enjoyable. And that's what I think therapy is about. It's getting people to a spot where they can live a life that's actually worth living. Yeah. And I, again, as you say things, it really makes me want to ask you about certain experiences one of the things I love challenging the, the teachers and the artists that I train is to actually try not to figure out the answer to something or figure out how they're going to process something but allow their minds to be quiet now oftentimes we talk about the theta state you know getting themselves from the beta state to the theta state but that requires that they let go of a lot of their preconceptions of how they're going to make something happen and just let their intuition, their minds and their bodies speak to them. And as actors and singers, you think we would be okay with jumping off into that unknown space. Yet more and more I come in contact with performers and teachers who want to know exactly how to pull that trigger and analyze everything that they want to do along the way and it gets in the way of them being authentic really honest on stage joe and i've talked about this a lot so i know you can speak to that sort of fear of letting go and being authentic in the moment yeah i think sometimes we find comfort in the misery because we don't know any different (laughs) and so it is scary to think of what change would not only entail to get to but look and feel like and so you're you're right it's it's um it's a very it can almost be a very paralyzing uh moment and you know and going back to to and i don't know if i fully answered your question about the uh imposter syndrome it's it's remembering especially as a teacher right especially you know you know i'm talking to young therapists who since i'm a clinical supervisor and I'm working with young therapists who are trying to get into the field that's saying, okay, you, you know more than they do already. So you know how to find the answers. If somebody comes to you and asks you something that you feel incapable of answering, you know how to find the answer a lot faster than they do. And, you know, that can help fight that imposter syndrome. I like that. I like that a lot because that seems to be the thing that most people that I come in contact with suffer from and and these can be teachers that have been teaching for 40 plus years and yeah i mean and even through my own therapeutic process as i've gone through therapy this year and i've done emdr and several other types of therapy as a fully formed (laughs) woman in her 50s being willing to plow through that emotionally and work through that is super scary i mean what do you think about emdr oh i well first of all it's that has been life-saving for me because 
I love talk therapy, but EMDR has been the thing that has allowed my brain to rewire, yes. totally rewire around these traumatic experiences to the point where, I, look, when I started EMDR therapy, and my therapist actually is a pianist and a dancer, she's great, and she's in Colorado, but uh, when I started EMDR therapy, I was like, this is going to be so much, woo, I can't even stand it. She was like, right. this, okay, but so when I started it, and it was Philip, it was very difficult from a physical, traumatic, emotional standpoint. And for 24 hours after that, it was very difficult. I had physical headaches and things, but it was amazing how I woke up two days later and my, everything felt different. It was, I felt less reactive and it was like, what? And it's just, we talk about it all the time about how the brain can remap itself yes exactly. and then, yeah and the amygdala doesn't have to run your entire freaking life and so i was just like okay i'm sorry yeah and the best thing about that was when i figured out how that impacted my teaching how that brain mapping impacted my teaching to enable my students to get from that paralyzing analytical form of practice to that theta state creativity once I understood how the brain actually mapped the physicality of technique and artistry and, and got to the point where it could let go of that and go to creativity, right. it was like, oh, the, you know, the angels sang at that moment. Anyway, but I didn't. Well, yeah, and, and just the, just for the those who are not familiar with EMDR, you know, it's just quickly, it, it's a, a lot, but even the name is a mouthful, right? It's eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, right? So it is a very um, just bizarre therapeutic approach that utilizes eye movements like in your REM sleep to uh, create a bilateral stimulation where you get your left brain and your right brain active at the same time. It's similar to like a runner's clarity you know after you go for a long run people often feel like they have more clarity is because that left foot right foot pounding on the ground um, gives that same similar bilateral stimulation so doing that in a therapeutic sense with a specific purpose of not just some people get confused you know concerned about trauma work because they feel like they have to relive everything again but it's it's more trying to attack uh, belief systems that come from trauma and how to rewire them and open up, literally open up new neuropathways. And so uh, anybody that's interested, you know, that that's um, something, you know, Joe, I can uh, give you some things on links and stuff to, to add, but it is an amazing therapeutic approach for sure. And I'm super glad that you got to, got to do that and, and the benefits. And it probably didn't take you that long, right? It did not. It took me less than six months but I didn't start therapy until I was 56 years old and a lifetime of stuff came, basically was rewired. And the difference it has made, not just in my personal life, in my relationships, the difference it has made in my teaching and my awareness and in my life as a singer and an actor has been incredible. I just didn't know what I was missing. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah. For sure. Thank you for that. And thank you for clarifying for, for everyone who's not familiar with that therapeutic approach, what that actually is. And I can tell you, I'm a believer. All right. So I know one of the things Joe and I talk about a lot is particularly post-COVID in this new creative environment, how collaboration has impacted us. Um, we, 
you know, we find ourselves isolated in COVID. We find ourselves occasionally as artists isolating ourselves, but yet in the act of collaboration, we are creating what Joe and I call our culture. You called it the tribe. We've called it the tribe before too. But how powerful that culture that we allow ourselves to be a part of and the connectivity with people, how that how powerful that is in our creative lives, not just as people, but as working professionals. How would you speak to that, Philip? I mean, I... I truly believe that collaboration across the board, no matter whether it's, uh, you know, mental health and me collaborating with other mental health professionals in different specialties in the area or across the artistic platform, it it is, I I think it's something that has been around forever that kind of gets lost because when we become very isolated and think that we know it all, I I really feel like we're going to hit a wall, a ceiling a lot faster. Um, Collaboration is saying other people have ideas and other people have energy that they can bring to an, to a, you know, a plan or a structure or a team approach that's going to just blossom um, beyond what I think we can do on our own. And that's why I think, you know, you think of anybody, you know, Steve Jobs, right? He had to surround himself and collaborate with other people that without, he would have never gotten to where he was, right? And so I think we, we understand it in that capacity and like the tech world that you've got to have really awesome people in all these pieces. But then when we get into things like uh, community theater, right? It's, uh, we, we feel that there's this wall. And so it's like, no, okay, yeah. There are other people we got to let them in but sometimes i think our um, pride and ego can get in the way that's for sure yeah but can i ask a question just about that uh, it's it's interesting as we were discussing or the way you were discussing collaboration i also think there's a, a not just internally within maybe our own tribes or our own areas of expertise but i think honestly a recent conversation that you and i've had philip um you calling me about this this new idea that you have working balancing these ideas i think at the root of it it goes down to please correct me if you think different but it goes down to the trust and the ability to be vulnerable right going back to what you were talking about can you either agree with that or or can you expand maybe your thoughts on on just that piece how you can cross do you know what i mean between these different areas and i think that that's that's a um i think that there's yes the short answer is yes i agree i can speak to that uh the the longer answer is i think it, it we can have different kind of compartments in our head of how we've got folks that we collaborate with that are going to be more on a professional sense right but then yeah we've got people we can collaborate like you and i and our friendship i you know i trust you and allow myself to be vulnerable with you so i think i'm going to collaborate with you in a different way where i'm going to receive feedback a lot different right and so i think that brings a really good point that you know we may need to be intentional at having different branches of who we collaborate with because not everyone can meet every need, right? You know, my wife can't meet every need for me and that's why I have friends. And that's why we have uh, people that we hang out with at work or that we talk to on a professional sense. And so I think that collaboration and looking at it is like, you know, if you're only ever collaborating with one group, right? What are you missing out on? 
Um, but yeah, the vulnerability piece that that's going to be always the most difficult for folks. Um, and if you want to learn a lot about vulnerability, that would be a perfect Brene Brown thing. Um, her, her original Ted talk that's uh, easily accessible online. I'll give you some links for that, Joe, but uh, she also has a Netflix special. Uh, her most recent book is incredible. So it's, you know, she is an expert in the world of vulnerability and the way she expresses that is a uh, vulnerability in society is looked at as weakness, but there's never a time that you have to be vulnerable that doesn't take strength. And I think it's a powerful message that if anybody wants to dive more into that vulnerability to up their collaboration and creative world, um, please check her out. Yeah, that's an excellent, I was actually, that's an excellent point. And I was going to say that we, we try to train ourselves as actors and singers and our students as well on being vulnerable on stage. Um, and that's a very difficult place for them to get because it requires that they sort of open themselves up to possible hurt and possible criticism. And they're not willing to do that. I, I talk to my students a lot about this idea of culture. And I say to them, before you can be a good actor or a good singer, you have to be a good person. You have to treat yourself well first, yourself well, and then others well. And in that kind of environment, they're more able to be honest and vulnerable as a character. So we call it being versus performing. Uh, and that can be a tough place for young uh, performers to be where they're encouraged to just go out there and just, you know, hit the money note, kill, kill, kill. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, there's a uh, quote by David Foster Wallace, uh, the author, and he says, uh, you will stop caring about what other people think of you when you realize how seldom they do. Dr. <laughs> Phil quote too, because he says so. <laughs> it's, it's just such a true statement. You know, we're, we're very, we live in a very world where we're, we're moving from one point to another in our own lives. And so we're so consumed with what's in front of us and what we have to do and what we've already living in the past, living in the future, that the amount of time we really think about other people is not that high. And you got to think about it, that why would so many other people worry about you and what you did on stage or what you shared? Um, oftentimes they're more envious that you've done it and they can't. Yeah. And that a topic for another conversation is the role that social media plays in all of this, particularly the, our younger kids and, that have grown up in the social media world, whereas I, you know, didn't come to it till much later. So it has an impact on, I think, their sense of self, true right. sense of self. Well, that, that's an excellent segue into the next conversation, which is um, I know Joe can speak to this and you can as an actor too, but I'm often talking to my students about understanding their own character within them, their own, who they are, and how do you take that and develop that into the characters you portray? And can you take that too far? How do they separate themselves from that so that they don't end up, you know, method actors and end up the Heath Ledgers of the world? So can you speak to that particular topic? Yeah, you know, and I just, uh, I've always loved since, uh, you know, the first time Joe brought up that that kind of title of the character within us. Um, it, it's such a such a fitting phrase because 
there is this character within us and we're the ones who who know that character and feel that character but we oftentimes are very willful at working to understand that character um and so on the you know on the therapeutic side of things the way we tend to look at everything is in this uh biosocial aspect right so there's essentially nature versus nurture and so nature um being genetically what you got from your mom and dad whether it's attached to your lobes or eye color hair color height weight you know diseases whatever that gets passed down to us that we have zero say so in and then there's the nurture how we're raised you know what kind of parents did we have was it biological parents was it foster parents grandparents adoptive parents no parents um and then everything to what you know class did we grow up in what uh, spiritual beliefs what political beliefs what part of the country were we in and all of that plays into these as I said earlier, those automatic intrusive thoughts that we have, it becomes the filter through which we see the world. And that is our character, right? That That is how we respond or react to everything that's going on, all the things that are out of our control in front of us. And so it drives me nuts that our school systems don't touch mental health. We learn everything there is to know about the world and what's going on, except for what makes us tick why we do the things we do why we think the way we think it, it, it you know i've had people tell me that they didn't even realize until college that not everybody thought the same way they did mm-hmm. and so that is what therapy is it's a, it's a process of discovering that that character and i think going to your question the importance of that is because if we don't understand ourselves and why we do what we do, how in the world are we gonna accurately accurately portray, create even in a script, a screenplay, right? How are we going to create these characters when we don't even have our own worldview under wrap, right? And we think we do, but we, we live in a society where our main coping mechanism is avoidance, right? Very true, very true. That's why we love binge watching Netflix. That's why we love drugs and alcohol and sex and gambling and workout and food. It's all ways to prevent us from ever having to stop, think, and feel. And that's where I feel if everyone, especially in the creative world, could take the intentional time. And it doesn't have to be a lot. It could just literally be journaling for five minutes a day, just getting your thoughts out. But taking time intentionally to work on your mental health, it will, I, I, I believe in my, my heart and soul, it will impact a person's ability to, to be as um, effective as they want and need to be. Yeah, I love it. I think that's, I think that's powerful. And I just from my own standpoint, I can say, you know, I, I've always thought that I was a good teacher and a singer all my life, but the depth that has come into this sort of taking the time to figure out who I am from a mental health perspective and working through that therapeutically, journaling, being intentional in my relationships, how deeply that has impacted 
my teaching and my singing are definitely my personal relationships, but sometimes we're fearful to do that. And uh, and it does take some time, it doesn't take a tremendous amount of time, but I think, you know, we're much more prone to popping open Facebook or popping open TikTok than we are to dealing with our own stuff, you know. For sure, for sure. Not that there's nothing wrong with mindless scrolling, but it managed time, right? Set a, set a timer for yourself. Uh, you know, the, especially if you got Apple products, they will help you with uh, limiting your screen time. You just got to set yourself up for success. Correct. I agree with that. So I know uh, in talking with some people about our, our discussion tonight, several of them uh, particularly, I mean, in my own family, several of my stepchildren are involved in music, and uh, my, my one of my my oldest son is involved in music. And one of the things they always are talking about is the fact that they need mental health care. It is most health insurance. I mean, even my health insurance, which is pretty good, doesn't cover mental health care. Some of them don't have it at all, and they're really struggling right now to take care of their emotional and mental well being. What can what what does what advice do you offer them? You know, they're really struggling. You know, and that's it. it really drives me nuts that that is the case, and it, I think it's just com continues to amplify the the stigma around mental health. Um, you know, the fact that different um, insurance agencies look at outpatient mental health treatment as a medical necessity, and uh, Others just don't. And I mean, even to the point where some insurances will cover uh, individual therapy, but will not cover marital therapy, uh, which is, I always jokingly, but not really jokingly feel that that's the insurance companies and divorce attorneys uh, being in cahoots together. Um, however, you're right. It is a, it is a unfortunate unfortunate mess that a lot of people find themselves in where they work really hard to have their medical insurance and to find that it does not cover the needs that they have, especially when it comes to mental health. Um, it, there are different, different avenues I believe that you can take. Uh, in my experience, advocacy is your best policy uh, for yourself. Fight, fight, fight the insurance companies. They are known to give in with enough resistance and so enough pressure and, and consistency. So it is completely um, tangible to, let's say, for example, if you have a, if you fall into the umbrella where you have a medical insurance, but uh, a therapist that you do want to see does not, uh, is not in network with that insurance, right? Let's say you have United Healthcare. And you really want to see Susie Q over here, but she does, she's not in network with United. She's in network with Blue Cross or other insurances. There, um, there oftentimes is a good argument that you can have if you have a good reason that you want to therapeutically see that person because they specialize in EMDR that you want, or it's a male or female therapist that you really want, or it's in uh, proximity to your to your living uh, arrangements that, that works for your work schedule, right? Something that is enough, right? You can call your insurance company and advocate for yourself that they will um, oftentimes give what's called a single case agreement, meaning wow. that they will say, for this single case, we will look at Suzy Q as in network, 
uh, so you can use your benefits. Now, outside of that, um, there are um, avenues that you can go to find therapists who have sliding scale fees. Um, it's uh, a little bit more difficult these days as the economy, everything is inflation and everything costs more. Therapists have to also look out for themselves uh, because sometimes the softest therapist heart, uh, they have a hard time making a living. So uh, they have to they have to stick pretty strict to some of their their um, uh, fee schedules, structures. Uh, but there are often agencies that you can find who have, um, if, if you're in a position where you've got low income to a spot where you just can't afford it outside of paying your bills, there are places that have scholarships and things of that sort. Um, NAMI, are you familiar with NAMI? Um, I think it's National Alliance for Mental Illness. I think, don't hold me to that. But uh, it is a national thing where most areas will have a hub. Um, so, for example, here in South Carolina, it's NAMI of the Low Country. Um, mm -hmm. So, if you look that up, e N A M I, um, it is a wonderful place that uh, has tons of resources. Oftentimes, they even have support groups that are free, um, and and they often have those in different categories, whether it's for someone who's going through domestic violence or someone who's grieving, someone who's um, a single mother, right? They, they just, depending on your location, they will have different things of that sort. Um, they oftentimes know resources and they connect with local therapists who have uh, more sliding scales if you need that type of thing. Um, outside of that, there are wonderful, and um, you know, pains me sometimes to say it, but influencers on social media that uh, really do push great, great content. Um, and oftentimes they're even folks who've written wonderful books, uh, whether it's on parenting, whether it's on um, relationships, there's, there's tons of great things. And then obviously podcasts, right? Great content out in the podcast world. So uh, it, it is a, it's a difficult challenge. My biggest advice is don't, get burdened down by the process. The process of getting to that therapist is the most difficult part of the therapeutic part uh, process as a whole. Uh, it, once you can just get through that burden, it it's often feels a lot lighter. Um, there's another website that's called Psychology Today. And it's a wonderful website where you can search for a therapist, just like you search for a car, right? And uh, put in filters. So if you've got no insurance or you've got a specific insurance, but um, if, if your insurance just is refusing to look at mental health as a medical necessity, I'd say fight them, complain, argue, talk to them, debate with them, whatever you have to do because you work hard for your insurance. And I believe that it's incredibly unethical for an, a medical insurance company to not uh, at least consider that treatment in network. You want me to go ahead? Yeah, I just had a quick kind of as a follow up um, for those creatives out there that are listening or just anybody that's listening. Um, when I was in graduate school, I went to a therapist on a sliding scale um, and mine was, I only had to pay $20. Now I recognize that that therapist was, that was really cheap, but I was really poor, right? In, in the system. 
my point in bringing that up is, is Philip, is that, I, I understand that it depends on the therapist, right? And their, I guess, um, company that they work for or whatever, but is it possible for somebody, you know, young who is, you know, wanting this to say, this could be manageable? Because you think about, let's say $25, they spend that possibly on coffee or on going out to eat, if you're investing in yourself. So I, I guess my question comes back to, is that, you know, could they find something that reasonable? You know, yeah, what I mean? you're bringing you're bringing the hard truth, man. Yeah, that that is that's that's really what it comes down to is what is our our mental health worth? What mm-hmm. investment is it worth putting into ourselves? And when we think about, you know, if you really, really went and looked at how much you spend a month on eating out or coffee or entertainment, uh subscriptions to streaming services for us to numb out on every night and you really analyzed your financial state you would find that you have enough money to go to therapists even if you are going to pay full full price now you may not go multiple times a week but the typical thing people got to remember the typical pattern and i always tell this to to you know clients when they're coming in for the first session is i'm trying to work myself out of a job i i don't want to have to be their therapist forever and they don't want to have to get well I do have some clients that would come forever. However, mm-hmm. most people don't. So we look at this as a stepping stone. Now, depending on the complexity of your past and all that you've been through, as therapists, we can't really put a time frame on how long that's going to last. For some people, it could be six weeks. For some people, it could be six years. However, mm-hmm. it's not typically you know, multiple times a week throughout that period. It's generally... Yeah, you may go once a week in the beginning just to really build an established relationship with that therapist because, in my opinion, relationship is everything. It's almost, I would say, 80% of the therapeutic approach is that relationship because if you don't trust your therapist, please go find somebody else. Please, please, because you do not have to be obligated to continue to see somebody just because you had one assessment or three sessions. If you're not feeling it, you're not feeling it. And you cannot fight that urge to not trust someone. So go find someone that you can trust, even if you have to see four different therapists until you find the right one. Now, oftentimes therapists will talk to you on the phone to give a little, you know, quick, brief talk to see if it's the right fit. Have some questions lined up. Ask them things that you want to make sure that they're okay with. Like for example, I had a lady the other day asking me, am I okay working with someone who is a lesbian and in a relationship? Great question, right? Because if I wasn't, if I had bias towards that, she needs to know that. So I was really proud of her for asking that question. So yes, you've got to really start to look at what is your own life worth? What is having a life that's worth living? And most of us don't even, we can't even fathom what that is because we've never done the work. If this was easy, everybody would do it. Everybody. But it's not. It's hard. But the things that hold the most weight in life are the things that are hard, the things that we push through. So if you have to find somebody on a sliding scale, find somebody. But you got to be patient. It may take a little longer. Now, another tip is in the world of therapists, there are provisionally licensed therapists who are out of grad school. They have you know, finished all of their schooling, they are just doing a two-year period of working under supervision 
um, by someone, for example, like myself. And so that therapist is very competent. They have made it through the process of school. They have passed a board test. The, the state has given them a provisional licensure so they're recognized by the state. And oftentimes they just need experience. And so you can get a really good rate often if you find somebody at an agency or even private practice who's a provisional licensure, um, you might be able to find that they have more discounted rates. Um, and it's, you know, helping them, helping you, everybody wins. Well, that's a great question, Joe, because it it is not something a lot of people put into perspective of how much are they willing to spend on themselves. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, I used that as an excuse for years. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. And eventually it leaks out sideways in other areas of your life. And you get to the point where you're like, okay, and it, I made it a priority for sure. <laughs> Well, it's like, you know, I, I always tell people it's that that kind of quote of if you don't work on your mental health, you will be forced to work on your mental health. And do you want to be proactive or reactive? And in a reactive society, it's, you know, it's easier to wait until, you know, verbal crap hits the fan. But uh, it's, in my opinion, a lot more effective when you come in not in crisis and just wanting to better yourself. It's a lot faster, a lot cheaper. Yeah, that's great advice. And I was gonna to say too, just as a small aside, but if you're living in a particular state and you have a particular health insurance carrier, you may find that the type of therapy you're seeking, there's not someone licensed in that state. So for instance, with EMDR, there was no one at the time that I selected a therapist who was licensed to practice EMDR therapy in the state of Alabama. And so that led me to my therapist who was actually in the state of Colorado. Um, so some of those things may impact the, the type of therapist you can uh, uh, have under your insurance coverage. I mean, that helps it out. For sure, right. If you live in a rural area, there may not be as many, many options. But uh, luckily, these days, there are great platforms like BetterHelp and uh, Talkspace and things like that, where it's a, it is a more affordable rate. And some people love it because they get to do it from the comfort of their home or on their lunch break at work, and they don't have to leave the office. So you know, in, in this day and age, it's really, in my opinion, next to impossible not to be able to find an appropriate way to work on your mental health. Uh, it's not a one size fits all. Uh, oftentimes you have to do a lot of work on your own before you're even ready to see a therapist. So find workbooks, listen to podcasts, get your head thinking in a way of bettering yourself. That way, when you actually go sit down with somebody, you're not starting from scratch. You can come in with a foundation that that therapist can just then guide you through a, a more effective path. Yeah, I agree. Okay, well, this next question is about how we deal with the big R, the, re the rejection that comes about in what we do. We deal with rejection on a daily basis. What is your advice for, for, for specifically for performers and teachers, creatives, how they go about dealing with rejection, which is just a part of the whole thing? Gosh, you know, rejection, it, it, going back to the imposter syndrome and living with the shame inside of ourselves, it's, it, it's that fear of having more evidence to shame ourselves. And if somebody doesn't like me, then do I still have worth? And, you know, it, it's, um, I, I think, especially when it comes to the, the creative world where so much is about your 
your creative gift, your looks, your voice, your dancing. It's so hard not to take it personal. And uh, that, that rejection is something that I honestly don't know if there's a way to take this thing away fully. Um, it's more, what do we do with that uncomfortable? And it's, you know, re remembering there's no way in life to escape uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be a part of life. And so if you have a hard time dealing with rejection on that bigger scale from auditions or going to pitch an idea or a screenplay or whatever that might be, start working on smaller things. You know, it's, a, it's very hard to just get over that instantly. So my biggest advice is start working on the small no's, like asking a friend out to, to grab drinks or to dinner and they say no, right? How, how do you personalize that? If you send somebody a text and they don't respond, how are you internalizing that? And if you can't do it on the small things, you're really going to have a hard time being as is successful on the bigger things like rejection from a job that you desperately need because you're so in need of money, right? It's, it's hard to deal with rejection that holds so much weight on your life. So start on the smaller things, work your way up. And we understand that when it comes to playing the guitar, right? I'm not going to play a Led Zeppelin song the first day I grab that guitar. We know it takes time and it takes practice and it takes hours and intentionality of sitting down with this guitar. But when it comes to our mental health, we think we just need to be able to get over it instantly. So my, my biggest thing is I feel you, you're validated, you're justified in your pain and uncomfortable feelings, but remember, it's just a feeling. Mm -hmm. and there's um, a cognitive distortion that I talk to a lot of people about, which is called emotional reasoning. I feel this, so it must be true, right? I feel like I failed, so I must have failed. I feel like they hate me, so they must hate me. I feel like I don't have worth, so I don't have worth. It's false. Yes. It's not true. Cognitive distortion, just the noise in the head. You're right, absolutely. And I, you know, a lot of times when I'm working with my younger students, helping build them towards what I know is going to be, you know, a good bit of rejection helping them understand themselves and having a sense of self and having a sense of themselves as authentic, honest creators of what they're doing. Once they have that, that helps them, I find, navigate that better than when they just are in that just shell of a performance world where they have no sense of who they are. Right. I think that's something built over time. That goes back to our, our conversation earlier about culture and how we as mentors impact, culturally impact our students. And I think what we forget about too is that we consider ourselves mentors. We forget that the culture starts from within us first, how we treat ourselves and how we deal with ourselves and then radiates, radiates out from that. And I think that goes back to, are we as mentors willing to do the dive into our own mental and emotional health and work on that knowing you're impacting other people culturally around us every, every move forward. So, um, okay, so I 
the last thing I want to ask you about, uh, you know, I've learned over this past year in my journey, which has been kind of crazy, but great, that <laughs> I'm lifting big things, doing all sorts of crazy things I never thought I would do. My husband wants to take out additional life insurance policies on me and regularly films me doing crazy stuff and calls it my unnatural acts. And by unnatural acts, I'm like doing handstands on the wall <laughs> and all these crazy races. And so what I really have learned over this past year is that my self-care, my mental health, my emotional health, my physical health, all of that comes together to serve the whole. I can't separate them out. Um, so would you give us your best advice about self-care mentally, emotionally, how all those things come together? What is your best advice for that? Yeah, no, and I, and I love that you gave those different parts. I think it's, that's what I always really try to push with, with my clients is we've got our mental health, our physical health, and our spiritual health. And it's important that we have balance across them all. Uh, everybody's is going to look different. Everybody's mental health is different. Everybody's physical health limitations are different. Their spiritual beliefs are different. And so it's not trying to push an idea. It's saying, what are you doing on a daily or weekly basis to work on all three aspects? And, and we're not often balanced with that. You know, we spend a lot of time, yeah, maybe doing handstands on the wall, right? But are we doing enough over here with our, uh, our spiritual health? Are we doing enough with our mental health? And so physical health gets a, a big... Um, push by our society, you know, our, our looks and is what we are bought into this belief that that's what gains us acceptance and respect. And so it's, it's a really hard thing to fight. So being intentional is the key word. What are you doing? And it doesn't have to be a lot. It, it can be just, as I said earlier, five minute brain dump in a journal, uh, just to make sense of your thoughts instead of letting them be overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. But the biggest piece of advice I have, because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there about self care. There really is that you, you can really if if you are not seeing anything on self care, it's because you're just not looking. Uh, is a lot of content that you can find. Uh, the biggest thing that I can say though is don't misunderstand self care with something that makes your future life more difficult. That's not self care. You know, saying I had a really crappy week, so I'm going to go and do some retail therapy this weekend, but then next week I can't pay my bills. That's not self-care. That's mm -hmm. making your, your future self stressed to the max. So just because you want something in this moment, you want to veg out for six hours on this new Netflix show. Great. How is that impacting you though? Now, are you behind on laundry? Did you not grocery shop this weekend? So you're stressed and now spending more money during the week. That's not the, the heart of self-care. Self-care is saying, how can I take care of myself now? But how can I think of my future self, right? Mm -hmm. If that's something as small as I hate waking up in the morning and going to work. So I'm going to set my clothes out tonight so that tomorrow I am just ready to go. I don't have to think about my clothes. And so that could be something as, that's super tangible to do. But again, it takes intentionality and it's thinking about not just me right now and what I want, but what is going to make my life better, healthier, more effective, right? I, I tell people all the time, it's not about good, bad, right, and wrong, because that's all relative on who you ask. Somebody could say, 
a horrible idea to set your clothes out the night before because you don't know what mood you'll be in in the morning, right? It's a waste of time. Wait till the morning. So we can't go based on everybody's um, opinions on that. So it's saying what is going to be effective for your life. And most of the time we know. We know the things. We know without a shadow of a doubt the things that are going to make us happy. We just resist doing them. And so self-care is learning to be self-disciplined, which is learning to say no to ourselves. And just, yeah, I know that. And that has such an impact on our, not only ourselves, but our relationships down the road. It's, it's hard for 20-year-olds to think having <laughs> grown children and what those decisions in your 20s, how those decisions will impact your grown children and your grandchildren one day. And I'm still sitting on the side where I have grandchildren now. And I wow, you know, but that's, that's, that's her advice. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. All right, Joe, did you have anything else you wanted to offer this evening before we close up here? No, um, just that I'm thankful Philip was able to join us. And I think, you know, and hope that the listeners out there were able to um, gain some, you know, tools potentially and knowing where to find resources. Um I know just with my own experience, it's been helpful, not just having Philip, obviously, in my life, but being willing to advocate, as Philip talked about for yourself, uh, and willing to make the sacrifices, whether it's me not getting coffee, as I mentioned earlier, um, it was beneficial. So uh, I think this is great for all of us, Marianne. And Joe, to, to toot your horn, I mean, your advocacy and your your own stuff was getting a therapist to get a license in a different state, right? So that they could see you. So it is it is not taking no for face value, you know, allowing yourself to push forward. Yeah. And it really also is about finding the, the therapist that best fits what you need. I, you know, people will oftentimes, not that there's anything wrong with this, will gravitate towards a a pastor as a therapist and sometimes that might not meet the needs for what you need in terms of, of past issues and so just really being an advocate for yourself and saying i need this person to do this and this and this taking the time to find that person is, is i had a uh, client who was a contractor and he told me that it's the rule of the triangle right that, that you can have something fast you can have something cheap or you can have something quality okay. and you can only ever pick two right mm -hmm. so if you want it fast and quality it's not going to be cheap right yep. <laughs> fast and cheap it's probably not going to be very quality and so you've got to think of that that almost kind of applies to therapists right if you need the cost to be down and low you're probably not going to have access to the most quality therapist and so it, it doesn't mean that it's going to be wrong for you but you gotta have to manage your expectations to meet your need right there, because it doesn't mean that in five years, you may not have a different insurance or a different income level or live in a different state. And so the therapist that you start with is not the be all of end all where you're going to gain every bit of your information from it. I've got people that come and see me and I'm the 10th therapist that they've seen and they learn a little bit new. So it, it you know, don't feel that whatever you commit to is, you know, it, and you're never going to do it again. It's just start, just start. If you don't pull the trigger, then it becomes increasingly more difficult. Yeah. 
I agree. And one thing that I want to note, just on regards to Philip, that the younger listeners that are listening to, you know, your podcast, Marianne, um, you know, Philip started out as he talked about this double major. He's now not only, you know, yes, he's a therapist, but he's an entrepreneur as well, right? And we've talked about that, you know, before on, on, on a different session with this. And I think it's important for these young people that are listening to know that it just because you're heading down one path doesn't mean that that's the path you have to go down. Could be that you have these other gifts like Philip did to impact so many people's lives. I mean, Philip comes in contact with probably he's had, you know, over a hundred patients, probably well more in his career. And we as artists love the opportunity to get on stage and perform and touch someone. And Philip does that through a different uh, venue. And uh, it's exciting to see where, you know, when you look back, I've had the privilege of seeing Philip where he's come and where he is today. And it's exciting. And and to give a little hope to those listeners um, that study with Marianne or or listen to Marianne and, and then others in your own teachers that, you know, uh, advocating for yourself, you know, not giving up. Um, there's opportunity. One thing that we didn't talk about and we don't have time to go into is just the suicide rate in the country today regarding mental health and the seriousness behind it. Um, just reminding people that you're not alone, right? And people like Philip, Marianne, myself, we're out there, um, pick up the phone, you know? So anyways, I just wanted to touch on that. And just a quick plug, there are um, easily accessible suicide hotlines, suicide text lines, if we don't feel like calling. Um, and you know, just a quick Google search will pull those up. Uh, Joe, I'll try to get you the, yeah. I can't remember, but, um, <clears throat> very important. Um, got to take it serious and you got to talk about it. That's, that's, that's very true. So, uh, for you guys who are tuning in, we will have links and information about a lot of what we've been talking about tonight. Uh, uh, in this particular episode of MK Speaks. I also want to let you know that if you would like to uh, listen to all of the MK Speaks episodes, you can go to Apple Podcasts, but you can also go to the MK Speaks YouTube page uh, and subscribe, like, and subscribe there, and you'll be able to view this episode free of charge and any others that we put up. Tonight, we have been having a meet, what I think is a meaningful discussion about uh, mental health. We've, of course, we're the three of us are artists and creatives, but uh, this is something that I think permeates our society. But we are particularly struggling with it right now in our creative economy. And never has there been a time where we've needed each other more and needed to be vulnerable with one another more. And so I, I want to thank my guest, Philip Searcy. I want to thank my co host, Joe Hernandez. And uh, Hope that you guys can find some information that's useful and helpful here. And we're wishing you peace and blessings. Bye. Thank you.